we're going to do this morning, we are going to prepare for our journey through the book of James. So let me go ahead and have you turn to the book of James. If uh, you need a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find the book of James beginning on page 1700. What I'm going to do today is just lay out the path, kind of show you the road map, a little bit of background, so to speak, and we're going to address in specific only one verse this morning, the first one, though we'll read uh, a number of others along the way. And what I want to do this morning is answer four background questions as we begin our study of the book of James. And and it's a letter, by the way, right? James wrote it to to certain people, to believers, wrote it as a letter. That's why we sometimes refer to these as epistles, just uh, the Greek word for letter. And the four questions I want us to answer are these. First of all, who was James? Secondly, to whom was he writing? Third, what was the purpose of this letter? And fourth, what should we be expecting to learn from it? The title of the message this morning is Planning Our Journey Through James. Let's uh, begin with prayer. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word. and We're thankful for just the various perspectives and, and emphases of the different writers of, of the New Testament letters and all the books of the New Testament. Lord, we're thankful that we can spend some time in this very practical, down-to-earth book written by, by James. We pray, Father, that this would be a profitable time for us. It would be a time when we would allow Your Spirit to minister the truths and the challenges and the commands of this book to our souls. And that we would respond in faith. And that we would let You do the changing that You desire to do in our lives. So we ask for Your blessing and Your leading, uh, not only today but throughout this study. We give you the praise and the honor for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's take a look at our one key verse for today, and it's the first verse. And as the epistles commonly do, it it identifies the writer, it identifies the audience, just gives a little bit of a greeting. And James says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And then he goes on there to those familiar words, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations and so on. But we're just going to think here for a few minutes about that first verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And so let's, let's talk about this matter of who was James. Okay, now the, the Greek word for James is Jacobus. So it would be kind of like the, the Hebrew name Jacob, kind of the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Jacob. And, and though we're pretty sure, in fact, I, I'm really quite sure, but the fact is we don't know absolutely for sure who James was. I mean, the, James, uh, the name James was as common in the first century as it is today. Maybe, maybe more common, particularly amongst Jewish people. In the New Testament, we find at least four men identified by that name. One of the disciples was called James, and he's always referred to as James the son of Alphaeus. That's because there's another James who was a disciple. And, and James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the twelve, possibly the brother of Matthew. Matthew's father apparently was also named Alphaeus. Personally, I don't think they were brothers, but you know, one of the twelve, James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know much about him. Another James was either the father or possibly the brother of another disciple named Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, 
You know, the other Judas, or as Jesus says, Judas, not Iscariot, okay? That Judas had either a father or a brother whose name was James. You ask me, why do you say one or the other? Because the way the Greek language actually does it is they don't use words like brother, brother brother-in-law, father, son. Typically, they just say the one related to, if we were to try to translate it in in the intention. They do it very, very briefly, very compactly. Literally, it says, the of James, okay? It just kind of tells you that way, the one related to James. So this, man, this disciple Judas, one of the twelve, he's mentioned twice at least by Luke, Luke 6.16, Acts 1.13, and his father most likely, perhaps his brother, but his father most likely was James. I don't think either of those two James wrote this book. I don't think it was James, the son of Alphaeus. I don't think it was James, the father or brother of Judas. Now probably the best known James in the Bible, the one we're most familiar with, is James the disciple, right? The one who was a fisherman. He was the son of Zebedee. He was the brother of, uh, the older brother of John, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel and the, the letters of John and the book of Revelation. That James. And, and James and John together were referred to as the sons of thunder. They were apparently some pretty, pretty strong, you know, kind of guys. Not, not unlike Peter, right? And, uh, and Andrew a little less or so. But, you know, people of strong personality, people God used greatly. And, and we might think that, well, maybe that's the James who wrote this book. But James the disciple was the first of the twelve disciples to be martyred. And he was killed in about A.D. 44, which was a little bit before this book was written. And we have good reason to to put the chronology together that way. So it wasn't written by that James, even though he's probably the best known and most often referred to James in the New Testament. In fact, Acts 12 says that about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So that's talking about there in Acts 12, the death, the martyrdom of James the disciple. So that leaves us with one more James, who you've probably figured out is the James who I think wrote this book. And that's James, the half-brother, for lack of a, of a better term, of Jesus. It's, it's the James who was born to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, but obviously, and Joseph was his, his true biological earthly father. And that's the James who I think is the author of this book. You know, the Catholic Church has long taught that, that Mary was a, a perpetual virgin is the expression that gets used, um, which would mean that she couldn't have had other children. But Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, this is when Jesus comes home to, to Nazareth. He's begun his ministry, and he comes to Nazareth, and the people of Nazareth look, and they say, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and Judah and of Simon? So he has those four brothers. And are not his sisters, plural, here with us? So he's got at least two sisters. They're living there in Nazareth. And they said, isn't Jesus, the, he's from that family. He's, he's the brother of those four brothers and, and those at least two sisters. And of those four brothers, James is listed first. So he's probably the, the oldest of the siblings, you know, the next in line um, after, after Jesus in terms of age. Now, let me just have you think about this for a minute. Imagine, if you will, growing up in the home with Jesus as your older brother. Okay, some of you maybe had an older brother who kind of set the bar high. You know, and maybe you felt like you lived in his shadow all your life. And 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 that was maybe a little bit difficult, okay? Well, imagine if that older brother was was literally completely fully absolutely in every way truly perfect. Right? I mean, that's Jesus. And 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 so those younger siblings um I got to think it was it was some challenging days for them, 
You know, I don't know if, if Mary and Joseph fell prey to the, you know, why can't you be more like your brother? I'm, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd like to think that they were a little bit, uh, you know, beyond that, both in their understanding of who Jesus really was as well as their, their parenting style, but I don't know. But, but that's the home that James grew up in. And in fact, as you read through the New Testament, it leads us to believe, and, and I think with, with a proper conclusion, that all the way up through Jesus' earthly ministry, his three-year earthly ministry, up, up until his crucifixion, that, that Jesus' half-siblings, if you will, those that, were, that he grew up in the family with them, that they were not believers. And, and, and we see them intersecting with him at a couple of points in time uh, during that period of time, and, and the indication is that they did not believe. In fact, John chapter 7 and verse 5 says explicitly that his brothers, speaking of his earthly brothers, didn't believe in him. They didn't believe he was the promised Messiah. They didn't believe he was the Son of God. He was maybe a really, really good brother, kind of annoying to them, but, but he, they, they didn't fully appreciate, didn't understand, or chose to reject. Whatever their level of understanding was, I don't know, but they didn't believe in him at that point. And yet in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, just soon after the ascension, we find Jesus' brothers, and the implication is all of them, and, and his mother Mary in the upper room praying with the disciples. And you say, wow, that's a pretty sudden change. I mean, there's not a lot of time transpired there. What made the difference? Well, I think it was the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7 tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus was seen of James and, and then the rest of the disciples. And apparently, you know, Jesus spoke with James. And, and James, I would guess, if he hadn't already been converted at that moment, was converted on the spot and, and never to turn back and, and fully committed. And apparently he shared that with his brothers and they came to believe in who Jesus really was and is and, and gathered with the disciples and they are praying. And, you know, they, they, they came to realize that those rumors that they had probably heard during all their grown-up years about how Jesus was, was illegitimate, and those were said disparagingly by those who didn't like Him. But they came to realize that, you know what, He really was virgin-born. He really is the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. All of those things came together for them, and James became a respected and very influential believer in the early church. He became the leader, the, the pastor, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem, which was kind of the, the central church as, as the church age began, as things began to unfold, beginning there with Pentecost. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul, okay, this is the Apostle Paul who is, who is not afraid to, to levy criticism when it's needed, um, who is himself a, a great man of God. He looks up to James and regards him as a pillar in the early church. James was the one who oversaw the, the, the conference, the meeting, whatever you want to call it there, in Acts chapter 15 where they talked about what the expectations ought to be for Gentile Christians when it came to the provisions of the Old Testament law. And, you know, the, the Jerusalem church was maybe almost exclusively Jewish, and so it was a big question mark of so someone who didn't grow up with that, what are the expectations? And, and James was the one who listened to those arguments and drew a conclusion from the Scripture that brought peace among the differing factions there. When Peter was delivered from prison in Acts chapter 12, we looked at that passage a couple Wednesday nights ago, he told the believers to send word to James. When Paul came to visit Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, it was to James that he brought greetings and the special love offering from the Gentiles. So, so James is a very influential man in, in the early church. Now, we don't have any record in the Bible 
about his death, but tradition tells us that James was martyred in A.D. 62. And, and the story is that the Pharisees in Jerusalem so hated James' testimony for Christ that they had him thrown down from the temple wall, which for those of you who have been in Jerusalem, you know that's a long fall. And, and when he was still alive after having been cast down from the temple wall, he was beaten to death with clubs. And that traditional account also relates that when James died, he did so using the words of Jesus where he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So you say, what kind of man was, was James, the man who wrote this book of the Bible? Well, clearly he was an honorable and, and deeply spiritual man uh, to have been entrusted with the kind of leadership role that he had so early on. You know, God was obviously had his hand upon him and, and used him in great ways. And just the way he handles the situation in Acts 15 just speaks well of his reliance upon Scripture and, and his ability to say what needs to be said in a proper way while giving credence to the burdens and concerns of others. James was known by many as James the Just because of his holy and righteous and godly manner of living. Tradition also tells us that he was a man of prayer. And uh, you can see that emphasis even in this letter. And it's said that he prayed so much that his knees were like those of a camel. And yet, despite such an amazing testimony, despite the considerable influence that he had, I want us to think here for a moment about how James describes himself. He, he doesn't say James, the, the brother or half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't say James, the, the pastor of the First Christian Church of Jerusalem. He doesn't say James, apostle and leader of, of you know, Christianity in those early days. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, folks, that is the greatest calling a man or woman has. To be called a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a, in a culture, and it's not just our culture. It was true back in the days of disciples. They, they grappled for position and, and, and accolades and wanting to be esteemed and respected and regarded. And, and the world we live in says, you know, put your best foot forward, you know, promote yourself, advance yourself. Um, we, we, in our flesh, almost without thinking, try to make sure people think well of us and try to be real careful that nobody draws any wrong conclusions, or maybe they're right conclusions, but things that we don't want known about ourselves. And we're all concerned about image and presentation. And James is just concerned that people understand that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word servant is the word bond slave. He's, he's a slave to Christ and not a grudging slave. Uh, a willing, glad, thankful slave. A servant to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, just that reality alone could be transformative in our lives. If, if we would recognize that, that all that really matters is that we are faithfully serving God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that we are a servant of Him first, foremost, and all, and everything else is, is secondary. Everything else is, you know, the things that God brings along in our lives, but what He is interested in and what we ought to be interested in is that we are servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's who James was. Now we have the question, to whom was he writing? Wow, my clock here says 9.23. And it's not moving because it said 9.23 a little before. So, all right, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be mindful of that. To whom was he writing? It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. James was writing to Jews living outside 
the land of Palestine. The term 12 tribes can only mean the people of Israel, the Jewish nation. Sometimes people want to kind of take references to Israel and and broaden them and say they're kind of referring to the church and the church kind of replaces Israel. You know, there is in God's plan the nation Israel. There is in God's plan believers in Christ. There is in God's plan people who were born into the nation of Israel who are Jewish by blood and saved and became children of God that way. I mean, there are all of those things and God maintains those kind of distinctions. And so we want to be careful of just kind of washing those things away. Now, that doesn't mean there's not valuable things here, needful things, urgent things in this letter for we who aren't Jewish. But to talk about specifically who James was writing to, he was writing to Jewish people. There were Jewish people living all over the world. Ever since back in, in the Old Testament days, God had, had scattered them. And, you know, the various, uh, the Assyrian conquest and the Babylonians and people were spread all over. And you remember the day of Pentecost? Remember how they spoke in tongues? The reason they spoke in tongues is because there were Jewish people from all over the world who had gathered together for the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And so they were spoken to in their own tongue as a testimony that what these men are saying is true. You need to listen to it. What they're saying about Jesus is so you need to hear, you need to be saved. And that's what was happening. These Jewish people from all over the world had come together there. Many of them had been saved. Many of them had gone back to from whence they came. Some of them had stayed there. But, but he's writing to Jews who lived all over the world. But he isn't writing just to any Jews. He's writing to Christian Jews. To, to Jewish people who have come to realize that Jesus was their promised Messiah and Savior. He addresses them throughout the letter as brethren, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have that expression, scattered abroad. It's an interesting word, or a term. It's the Greek word diaspora, which means in the dispersion. And in the dispersion was a term used, diaspora was used to identify the Jews living outside the land of Palestine. But the word, our, our translation has scattered abroad, and, and that's appropriate because the basic meaning of the word has that idea of, of scattering, the scattering of seed. And when the Jewish believers were scattered in that first wave of persecution, remember it began with with the the martyrdom of of Stephen and continued on in in Acts chapter 8 and following. And we talked about how James the disciple was martyred. That martyrdom had the effect of, of scattering those Jewish Christians even more. And in so doing, that was really the sowing of seed in many places. And much of that seed bore fruit. Acts 11 verse 19 says, now they which were scattered abroad, same word, upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but, on, but unto the Jews only. only. So originally their outreach was focused on the Jews, but of course it spread from there. And Paul and Barnabas got involved and they became burdened. God directed them to reach out to the Gentiles. And so then it began to spread even more. But it was that persecution that fueled that scattering. And James is writing here very early on. This is the earliest book that we have in the New Testament in terms of when it was written. James was writing very early on, maybe 10, 12 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, maybe just a few years after the martyrdom of Stephen. So right in the midst of that persecution, perhaps at this time Paul is beginning his first missionary journey, but very early on he's writing. And at that point in time, most of those believers scattered around were were Jewish believers. And that's who he's writing to. They're not in Jerusalem anymore. They've, they've been scattered or they've gone back home, but they're all throughout the Roman Empire. And that's who he is writing to. He's in particular wanting to encourage Jewish Christians who are scattered abroad. These folks would have needs and problems of, of their own. Being Jews, 
they'd be rejected by Gentiles. And being Christian Jews, they would be rejected by their own countrymen. And so that brought particular matters of trial and suffering upon them. And that's why that's one of the subjects that he begins talking about. As you suffer, as you experience trials, as you endure these hardships. So that's who James was writing to. Now, let's talk for a few minutes here about what was the purpose of this letter. Certainly, part of James' reason for writing was simply to encourage these Jewish believers in difficult times. His point wasn't primarily to uh, teach them theology. Paul, often that was kind of a central part of what he would write. But, But James' purpose was not primarily theological. It was highly practical. James wanted to talk to them about living the Christian life in the face of suffering, in the face of hardship. And it tells us how we as believers should live for God, how we can be, as James was, servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so scholars believe, as as I mentioned, this was written very early on in the late 40s, right? That's not the 1940s, right? That's the aught-aught 40s, okay? Um, Really, really early on, probably 80, 45 80, 46, 47, somewhere in there. And it was written to these hurting people. And it was written to challenge them to continue living for Christ and to let the reality of their faith make a difference in their lives. There are 108 verses in the book, and depending on who's counting, you get anywhere from 54, 55, maybe as many as 59 or 60 commands. Okay? That's a lot of commands. I mean, that's on, on the average probably uh, roughly or, or maybe even more than one command for every two verses. There's just a lot of imperative statements. So there's a sense in which James is kind of like a, a drill sergeant and he's barking out, you know, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. You know, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That's a, that's a command. And, and it's just filled with these, these imperative statements challenging the people, you know what, you're, you're a believer. You, you say you have faith. Fine. Show me your faith by how you, how you live. Because a real faith makes a difference in life. James is not as interested in hearing your profession of faith. He wants to see your practice of faith. Now, there's nothing wrong with, if, if you're a true believer, you have a profession of faith. It means you, you know what God has done for you and you can testify of that. But James is concerned there's a lot of people who may testify of that, but do they live it? He's far more interested in your practice of faith. James is about street-level Christianity, as one writer called it. It's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. It's down to earth. And and that's the title that I've chosen for our study, Down to Earth, Practical Truths from the Book of James. And James wants to remind us that belief in Christ changes everything. It's, It's the answer we need to every difficulty. But it's got to be more than just lip service. That's what he's writing about. Now, for most of the rest of our time this morning, I want us to do as those ancient believers would have done upon receiving a copy of this letter that James wrote. There there would have been somebody who knew there was a church in a particular town or village or city, and in God's providence, there would have been a runner. Somebody would would have copied the letter, and there would have been a runner, a messenger, who would have shown up at that church or with it, maybe at the pastor's door or whatever with a copy for them. And upon receiving the letter, the church would be called together and they would excitedly gather together. And in almost every case, it wouldn't look much like our gathering. It would be much smaller. You know, they, They'd be meeting together in, in a house. They'd probably share a meal. Maybe they'd sing some songs. And then the pastor would carefully open up 
that letter from James. And, and they would have understood this as something authoritative, something that, that God had put on the heart of James to write to them. And the pastor would read the letter in one sitting. He wouldn't say, open up your copy of the letter, because they didn't have any copies. And he wouldn't read the first sentence as I have done and then spend the next 45, 50 minutes talking about that sentence. doesn't mean they might not have done that subsequently, but they would have wanted to hear the whole thing eagerly and then talk about all of it. So what this morning what we're going to do is we're going to read the whole thing. Okay? We'll save the talking about all of it for the subsequent number of weeks. And we'll take it you know, section by section, paragraph by paragraph. But for this morning, I want us to read the whole book. Now, I know what they say, right? They, whoever they is, they say this is too much to read all at once. In fact, I have a book on preaching where the guy who, who preaches to probably 10, 15,000 people on, on every Lord's Day who says you should never read more than about five verses because that's about all the attention span that, that people have. And, and, and they say that because of you know, our graphic-centered uh, culture and because of your iPads and television and your smartphones and, and how everything is done with images, they say that you've got the attention span of a gnat. Okay? Now, what I would say is, is I would join with the writer of Hebrews and say, but I am persuaded better things of you. Okay? I, I think that we can sit down and read through five chapters of the Bible and maintain our focus just as those ancient believers would have done and done so eagerly and done so excitedly and done so wanting to hear what James has to say, what God has put on his heart, what there is for us to learn from and be challenged by and grow through how God wants to use this. So that's what we're going to do. It's going to take us about 15 minutes. Okay? Now, those of you who watch ball games, you can sit for a lot longer than 15 minutes. Okay? So, so I want to encourage you to really, by God's grace, focus here. Now, let me tell you something that I'm going to do that uh, will maybe help us stay focused. I've, I've gone through the original text and adjusted the translation just a bit to reflect more normal American uh, English syntax and word usage and language forms. For the most part, I'm going to follow the cadence and the phrasing of the King James, but for this reason... For this reading, I've taken you know, some of the Old English TH endings out and the these and the thous just to make it more easily readable and, and listenable as we go through an extended passage here. And you know, it's been my experience that, that sometimes, you know, in addition to making it a little smoother reading, sometimes hearing something that is a little different than what you're used to kind of helps you focus. And that's what I, what I want us to do. And I've just tried to adjust some vocabulary to better reflect the meaning of the original text and, and correspond to our present-day vocabulary. So you can follow along uh, with one of the Pew Bibles with your Bible, and you'll have no trouble doing that. Uh, maybe you want to just listen, but do listen. And, and listen carefully. And, and listen for the commands. And, and take note of the kinds of things that James is talking about with the thought that he's talking about how being a Christian ought to change our lives, change our perspective, change our outlook. So listen for those kind of things. So here we go. Chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you are needing wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without scolding, and it shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. 
For he that doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed to and fro. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. He is a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of lowly estate rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass, and its flower falls, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been proven through testing, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does He tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And the idea there is that the way, the way that shadows change as the earth turns, right? And, you know, the object doesn't change, but the shadows change. But with God, there's none of that. Of His own will, He brought us forth with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness, And superfluity of naughtiness. I love that expression. It means abundance of wickedness. And receive with meekness the engrafted word, the word implanted within you, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man looking at his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes his way and immediately forgets what manner of man he was. But anyone who looks carefully into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If any man among you seems to be religious and yet doesn't bridle his tongue and deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted or unstained from the world. Chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there comes unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in elegant apparel, and there come in also a poor man in shabby clothing, and you pay attention to the one wearing the nice clothing, and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor, you stand there or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then being partial among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Don't rich men oppress you and drag you before the judgment seats? Don't they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? If you fulfill, if you live out the royal law according to the Scripture, which says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in even one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you do kill, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For there shall be judgment without mercy to the one that has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith and does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says unto him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works accompanying it, is dead. Yea, a man may say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe us that there is one God, you do well. But even the devils believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O vain man? In other words, do you want an example that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Do you see how faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect, was made mature, complete. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was imputed, it was encountered unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Do you see then how that a man is justified by works and not by faith only? Likewise also wasn't Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. That passage we just read there was one that caused Martin Luther, one of the reformers, to question the inspiration of James because he understood James to be saying, you're saved by works. As we're going to see when we get to that passage and study it, that's not what James is saying. James is saying that if you really have faith, it will change your life. You'll live differently. You'll show four works because because a a transformed life is different than an unbelieving life. That's that's his point. Chapter 3. He says, My brethren, be not many, or not many of you should become teachers. Here's why. Knowing that we shall receive the restrictor judgment. For we all offend in many ways. If a man doesn't offend in word, he is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, so that they may obey us, and we, we steer their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they are so large, and are driven by fierce winds, yet they're steered with a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires to go. Even so the tongue is a little member and makes great boasts. Behold, how great a forest can be set on fire by just a little spark. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body. And it sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and of bird and of reptile, and of creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless God, even the Father, and with it we curse men, which are made in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing my brethren. These things ought not so to be. In other words, it shouldn't be like that. If you're a believer, it shouldn't be like that. Does the spring send forth from the same place fresh water and bitter? 
Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or can a grapevine bear figs? Likewise, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man with understanding among you? Let him show by his good conduct his works with the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil practice. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle and willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Chapter 4. Where do wars and fights among you come from? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that wars within you? You lust and you do not have, so you kill. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and war. Yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and don't receive because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your hedonistic desires. And that's what the word means. You adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you understand that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but, gives, but He gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your heart, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, what you ought to say is, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their rust shall be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh as would fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who have mowed down your fields, which you have withheld by fraud, those wages cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. Therefore be patient, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. 
Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and of patience. Behold, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear neither by heaven nor by the earth, neither by an oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Is any sick among you? Is any suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven. Confess your trespasses one to another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth its fruit. Brethren, if any of you go astray from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns back a sinner from his waywardness will save a soul from death and shall cover a multitude of sins. Now that's the end. Unlike Paul's letters, right, which were typically written to specific individuals, a lot of times there's, there's greetings and say hello to this, and we kind of would like to hear him say, you know, sincerely in Christ, you know, James or something like that. But, but that's the way they wrote their letters. He introduced himself at the beginning, and he laid it out for them. And now you can go home and you can say, you know what, we did just the kind of thing that the ancient church would have done when they gathered together around a letter like this. Now, folks, we have one more question to answer, and I'll do that quickly. This really is our conclusion today. What should we be expecting to learn from the book of James? I mean, James did write to those Jewish Christians. So in a sense, there was a specific context, and yet James is what we call a general epistle. Sometimes it's called a Catholic epistle, not Catholic in the idea of Roman Catholic, but Catholic, the word actually means universal. It's it's an epistle written to people in general. He doesn't name names. He's not thinking of a particular church, a particular group of people in that sense. He's thinking very broadly of the needs of believers who are going through difficulties and trials and seeking to live the Christian life. And in that sense, folks, this letter is written very much for you and for me. And, and it's every bit as relevant today in 2015 as it was in, you know, AD 45 or whenever exactly it was that James wrote it. And in a nutshell, here, folks, is what we need to take away from this letter as we study it here over several months. Faith in Christ ought to make a difference in your life. It ought to make a difference in how you handle trials, in who or what you turn to for wisdom and for insight in living, in how you deal with the temptation to sin, and what your perspective is on sin in general, and its sources and its effect. The fact that you're a believer ought to make a difference in terms of your attitude towards others. It should curb angry outbursts and help you deal with strife and contention in a godly way. It ought to make a difference in how you respond to the Word of God. It ought to make a difference in how you speak. It ought to make a difference in how you approach opportunities in life. It ought to affect your thoughts on prayer and the reality of prayer in your life. James talks about all those things and many, many more. And it is practical and it is down to earth. And he says, you know what? If you're a believer, don't just say it. Live it. And here's some of the ways that should be seen in how we live.
Folks, James isn't appealing to us to have more fortitude, more uh, you know, unction, more self, self-discipline. I mean, certainly he would want us to have more self-discipline, but, but he understands that this isn't something we can just say and fix. He says we need to humble ourselves. You know, we need to submit to God. We need to acknowledge our need. We need to do, you know, there's, there's, there's a story based on something here in James about a primitive tribesman, but apparently this is true. And, and he was shown for the first time a mirror. And when he looked in the mirror and saw himself, he was so shocked with what he saw that he broke the mirror. And, and folks, James uses that, that metaphor, right? That the Word of God is like a mirror. And we are to go and we are to see not only ourselves, but ourselves in comparison to what God says it means to be a believer in Christ and how we ought to live. And, and sadly, sometimes rather than responding to it, we just want to break the mirror and stop looking. And James says, you know what? Look into the perfect law of liberty. Be, be honest about your need. Be honest about your anger. Be honest about the way that you just yield to temptation and don't give much thought to its consequence. Be honest about your griping and complaining about the trials in life rather than counting them joy. Be honest about your material ambitions. Be honest about these things and realize that they don't line up with this book. And humble yourself before God. And in those who are humble, he gives great grace. You know, he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's what James is going to teach us. He's going to teach us that our lives need to be changed. And they can be changed. Because the God who saves us is the God who enables us and empowers us and wants to accomplish those things in our lives. And my burden for us, folks, is that we would allow God to transform us. You know, that was, that was James's pastoral concern for these fellow Jews and Christians. That they would let the Word of God, that they would let God transform them. And that's my pastoral concern for us. That we would let God, in His grace, by His Spirit, through His Word, change us. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never actually begun the Christian life. You know, you've never come to that point where you realize, you know what, I can't save myself. It's not by works. It's not by trying harder. It's not by doing certain things. It's by humbling myself before God and turning to Him and and saying, Lord, save me. (laughs) Forgive my sins. Give me new life. That's where salvation is. That's where the Christian life begins. And if you're here this morning and you're uncertain about that, you're not sure if you died, if you have eternal life, if if you're wondering if you've done enough, then you're not understanding the gospel the way the Bible presents it. We'd love to be a help to you. We're going to have an invitation here in a moment, and we'd love to you know, answer questions you may have and show you from the Word of God how you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life. And maybe you're a believer here this morning. Let me ask you this. If, if God shows you, will you by His grace let Him change you? you know, is, is that your desire? Now, we're going to get really practical and down to earth as we study through this book, okay? The rubber meets the road indeed. And it's easy for us to be dismissive of those very, very clear things that James is going to say. I mean, we just read them all, right? There's a lot of hard-hitting stuff there. And we need to be honest enough to say, you know what, Lord? You show me. You, you help me look into your word and see what, what you desire and where I am. And as best as I know, I'll submit myself to you and, and let you begin that work of transformation. I wonder if that is your burden this morning. 
If you're thinking, well, this will just be another sermon series and I'll take it in stride and nothing will be different and nothing will be changed, what a waste. What a sad thing for a Christian to have that kind of mindset. Folks, we have a flesh, I know that, and we do struggle. And I realize we may look at things and say, oh, man, I'm just overwhelmed by this. It just keeps getting me and getting me. You know what? God's grace is there for that. But it begins by being honest and saying, God, I need change. I, I need your transforming work within me. I need your spirit to get hold of my heart and stir me and shake me and point me in the right direction and enable me and undertake for me and live in and through me. That's what I need. And you know what, folks? If that's our desire, God's going to do amazing things as we go day by day, step by step, and look at his word. That's what God wants to do in the book of James. And it'll be a great journey if you're all willing to come along. Let me ask you to stand to your feet.